0: morning, everyone. We are on week four of our Joseph series, which I'm still thinking is seven weeks, but we'll see how it goes. And uh, we're into Genesis, uh, the very end of Genesis 39 and Genesis 40. And so if you want to turn there in your Bibles uh, or tap there on your phones, however you get there, that's great. If you... Are here today, and you don't have a Bible? There should be one near you, and if you don't own a Bible, you can take that one with you. It's yours. Um, we want you to have one. So, so far as we've been following along in the life of Joseph, he has been sort of a roller coaster kind of life. And I don't know whether your life has had seasons when it feels like you're in this roller coaster. Joseph is kind of favored son, top of the world, you know, having dreams about his family bowing down to him. And uh, then he's thrown into a pit and sold into slavery. And uh, then he's kind of rising in the household of Potiphar. He's in charge of all the slaves. Potiphar doesn't worry about anything because Joseph's in charge of it. He's got things, I mean, he's not at home, he's in Egypt, but he's got things going pretty well. And then he's thrown into another pit. He's thrown into prison uh, for allegedly, you know, assaulting Potiphar's wife, which we know wasn't true. And so this is Joseph's life, up, down, up, down, and he's now, as we're looking here, in the prison. We're at another low point in Joseph's life. But the message, I think, of Genesis 40 and what we're going to look at today is a message of perseverance and who Joseph is as a person of God, a man of God, and who we can learn from and who we take example of and who we should be as children of God. And so let's just look at this. I'm going to summarize some of Genesis 40 because it's a lot. But let's just look at the text and, and we'll read the text that uh, we'll be uh, looking at today. Genesis 39:22 is where I'll start. And it says, And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him, and whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. So he's on the rise again. Then in verse 1 of 40, sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt, and Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. And so he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them, and they continued for some time in custody. And one night they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each his own dream and each dream with its own interpretation when Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled, so he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house, why are your faces downcast today? And they said to him, we have had dreams and there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. And, and then the, it goes on in the chapter there to describe the two dreams. And for the sake of time, I won't, and we won't be spending time on the dreams, but you know, there was a vine for the cupbearer and three branches and the cupbearer squeezes the grapes and gives the cup to Pharaoh and he wonders what that means. And then for the baker, there were three baskets on his head and they were full of bread that was for Pharaoh. But birds came along and were eating the bread out of the basket that was on his head. And uh, he didn't, he, neither of them knew what they meant. And so Joseph uh, knows that the cupbearer is going to come out of this well and uh, not so much with the baker. It's not going to end well with the baker. Um, you know, he was very optimistic, but birds pecking at your head and stuff, I don't know why you thought that was a good dream. But, um, but Joseph goes on to tell, as he, as he, as he interprets the cupbearer's dream, he says in verse 14, only remember when it is well with you, because he knows it's going to go well, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. And So this is where we're at with Joseph, right? This is how he's feeling. Even as he's rising in the prison, I mean, I guess it's good that you're at the top of the pecking order in prison, uh, but you're still in prison. You're still in the pit. And, uh, and uh, he, he feels like he needs to get out of here because he's wrongly imprisoned. And so this is the circumstances. He is literally in a pit, and I have a picture of the pit. Uh, very much like what he was in. This is the prison under Caiaphas's house. This is actually the prison Jesus was thrown into on the night that he was betrayed. Uh, so uh, this is what a prison looks like, and they've built stairs in there to let the tourists down. But normally it would just be a hole with a ladder, and you get thrown down into that pit, and that's your prison. Um, you know, welcome to uh, first-century justice. And uh, so he's in a pit, and he's falsely accused, and he's alone, and he's forgotten. And then he's forgotten again by the cupbearer. And so when you just think of the circumstances that Joseph is in, it would be easy for him at this point to give up. It would be easy for him just to call it quits on the whole thing. And as we look at the time that Joseph spent in prison here, I think there's three things we can see that the writer is communicating to us about Joseph in the text that we have to take heart for ourselves. And And it's about this. And this phrase will keep coming up this week as you do your homework in the handout. Despite his circumstances, right? As as Luke um, talked about his grandfather, despite his circumstances, despite his circumstances, Joseph remains self disciplined or self discipled. He remains other focused and he remains God glorifying. And I think that's what we have to look at today and look at in the text here is despite circumstances, people of God remain self-discipled, other-focused, and God-glorifying. So let's look at this first one, self-discipled or self-disciplined. It says there that the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison and whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. He, he did all the jobs in the prison that needed to be done. And the keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything because the Lord was with him and the Lord made him succeed. And so Joseph here, as he's in prison, falsely accused, continues to serve well, even in the worst circumstances than before. He thought he had it bad as a slave. Now he's a slave that's been accused of abuse and is in prison for that offense. And so he's in even worse circumstances and he is serving. And we see here that on arriving in prison, he makes himself useful to the guards immediately. And he's so useful and trustworthy that the warden doesn't even pay attention to Joseph and the things under his charge. And then a little later, we'll see that when two high-profile prisoners show up, this warden immediately gives them to Joseph to look after. So when these two officers, the cupbearer and the baker, show up, they're in Joseph's charge. He almost certainly has no one else that follows God with him in prison. I mean, he may be physically confined with dozens of prisoners, but he's ultimately alone. There is no encouragement for Joseph to be found from others. He's a Hebrew alone in an Egyptian prison. He is far from family, and far from friends, and far from fellow Hebrews. But it says the Lord was with him. Not other people with Joseph, but the Lord. And what can we imagine that means? Was God with him in more dreams? Is that how God was with him? Possibly. God could have been giving Joseph more dreams or speaking to him in visions. Certainly we can imagine that Joseph was praying. I mean, what does it mean when the Lord is with us? It means that Joseph in prison alone still has the Lord with him in prayer he can still pray and communicate with his God but was the Lord with him also in a profoundly spiritual sense if you look in the book of Joshua verses 1 and 5 chapter 1 verse 5 it says no man shall be able to stand before you Joshua all the days of your life just as I was with Moses so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. This is God speaking to Joshua. He says, just like I was with Moses, just like I was with the fathers before you, I will be with you and I will not forsake you. And so I think we can put Joseph in that category with Moses and Joshua. The writer is clear here. The Lord was with Joseph, but in Joseph's circumstances, he was alone except that the Lord was with him in dreams, in prayer, just present with him spiritually. But Joseph could have easily rationalized just giving up his faith at this point. I mean, he had worked himself into favored status and God had left him in a pit twice in a row now. He was left in a pit once with his family and he's left in a pit now again after being kicked out of Potiphar's house. And yet his character and his faith continue to be disciplined. Joseph was self-discipling. There's nothing in this story that would make us seem like joseph is turning his back on god there's nothing in this story that would make us make it sound like joseph is somehow giving up and just deciding you know what somebody else can be the head of the household somebody else can be the head of the prison you know, i'm tired of doing all the work i'm tired of the one that's always carrying everything but joseph is self discipling and we need to disciple ourselves i mean let's consider ourselves we can relate in our lives with aspects of joseph's life we can have seasons where we feel betrayed by loved ones We can have seasons where we feel unfairly punished, that we don't deserve the pit that we find ourselves in, whether it's fired from a job, or whether it's struggling with illness, or whether it's abandoned by a family member, or even a spouse. It isn't fair, and it isn't fair. Right? We're in this, we can resonate with Joseph on the unfairness when he says, you know, I've been treated unfairly and I don't deserve to be in this pit. Our hearts can resonate with that because it really isn't fair, the circumstances in our life. We can be abandoned. We can be let down. And so then the question is, can we also relate to Joseph in our self-discipling and self-discipline? Joseph didn't have the Word of God, and we have the Scriptures. Joseph did not have fellow believers with him in prison, and yet we have the whole church to help us in our discipleship. And we have cell phones and instant messaging. I mean, I'm sure that Joseph would have loved to be able to send a tweet right there while he was in prison, right? Like, if he could just immediately contact his father or his brothers. But he had nothing. He had no contact. And we are blessed with the word of God. We're blessed with the church. We're blessed with disciples and people that can help us. We are in constant contact with each other any time of the day or night. We have the Holy Spirit and we have Jesus Christ. John fourteen twenty three says, Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. And so we can feel like Joseph, like we don't deserve to be in the pit we're in and we can relate to Joseph in that sense. But do we also relate to Joseph in his self-discipline and his self discipling Joseph continued to walk closely with God. If we look at this in the New Testament, 1 Peter 1, 5 to 5-6, and there's sort of a parallel passage here for the first two points. He says to, Peter says writes to the believers, he says, for this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and to knowledge self-control and to self-control perseverance and to perseverance godliness. That's an interesting phrase there. Peter says, add to your faith. So there's something we're supposed to be doing. We come to God. We know who Jesus is by faith. We have faith in God, and that's where our whole relationship starts. But then Peter, very interestingly here, says make every effort, he's talking about work here, effort, to add to your faith. And and then he lists all these things that you add, goodness and knowledge and self-control and perseverance and godliness that we are supposed to add by discipleship. How do we do that? How do we add to our faith? Well we talk about that all the time here at Lakeside, right? We have we, we've put forward five clear ways to be self-discipled or self-disciplined. And do you remember this slide, the five ones, right? We talked about this last year. It was orange, it was bright, it was easy to remember. This is this is adding to your faith. One service for worship, one time for prayer, one group for fellowship, one ministry for service, one friend for evangelism. There's five easy ways that we often talk about. The ways that we can add to our faith and to build on and to disciple ourselves in our relationship with God so that when we are in the pit we don't just abandon him and we don't feel abandoned five simple means of being self-disciplined and self-discipled we're not locked away in any prison what we face is not more than what Joseph faces God has given us all the means to be near to him and for him to be near to us. So Joseph, we look at first, is self-discipled, alone as he is in the pit, as alone as he is in a foreign land, as abandoned as he is in a prison. Joseph remains self-discipled and self-disciplined. Secondly, he remains others-focused, and this is an important one. It says, when Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled, so he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house, why are your faces downcast today? Now, it would have been easy again for Joseph to say, you know what, i got my own problems right dreams you want to talk to me about dreams i'll tell you about dreams right like how many of us in joseph's situation while we are in prison abandoned falsely accused would notice that some other prisoners are downcast that day i imagine in a prison that downcast is kind of the default emotion right like don't you think but Joseph is actually sensitive enough to others that he notices these two prisoners are extra downcast. They are extra sad this morning. And that's what, hap- what we often do, right? We would be the Joseph that, that just says, don't talk to me about your problems, I got my problems, right? When we're caught up in our own prison, when we have our own problems and our own difficulties mount, we tend to turn inward and people come to us in need and we don't help them, we often hurt them. Apart from Christ, what's most often true is that hurting people hurt people. And sometimes that's us. We're the ones that are hurting, and so we do the hurt. And if we don't hurt them, we at least don't have time for them. We want them to solve our problems, right? When we're in the pit, when we're in trouble, when we're struggling, we're wanting everybody to come and help us. We're not looking to help others. But the writer emphasizes this point. Joseph actually notices. He says they were troubled. He literally sees that they're downcast more than usual. And his concern is for others despite his own circumstances. Our circumstances are not an excuse to stop caring for others, to stop bearing other people's burdens. They're certainly not an excuse for us to hurt and harm others. I mean, do we need a break sometimes? Do we need help? Yes, of course we do. We need burden bearers beside us. Do we not long to be cared for even as we care for others? Of course we do. Joseph is no different. He longs to be cared for. He longs to be remembered. He says to the cupbearer, hey, I'm doing you this kindness. Can you remember me and do a kindness to me? We should long to be helped as we help. We can do that. We can ask for help even as we're helping others. But the point here is that Joseph, the writer, emphasizes the fact that Joseph, despite his circumstances, does not stop caring for others, does not even stop noticing that others need care. And that's an amazing thing to me, that Joseph would be in the situation that he's in, and he would wake up one morning in the prison and say, wow, you guys seem downcast. How can I help? Man, I would think he would have problems of his own. But this is how Joseph is self-disciplined and how he's other-focused. And notice this. This is important. His concern for others, because he is this way, becomes the avenue God uses to redeem Joseph's situation. It took longer than he hoped But Joseph's concern to notice the downcast and sadness of the cupbearer and the kindness that he showed him to listen to his dream and interpret it for him and the service he provided him, that very other folkedness and that kindness of Joseph is the means by which God ultimately redeems Joseph, isn't it? And so you could imagine what would have happened if Joseph was like us or like me anyway. If he was like, I'm in my second pit, I'm in prison, I'm falsely accused... I'm a Hebrew in an Egyptian court system. You know what? I'm just going to hunker down. Don't tell me about your problems. If Joseph had done that, Cupbearer never would have talked to him. Cupbearer never would have told him his dream. Never would have interpreted the dream. Cupbearer never would have went back to Pharaoh. Pharaoh never would have heard about Joseph. Joseph would still be in prison or worse. So just notice the chain of events. That is because Joseph is self-disciplined, because Joseph is self-discipled, because he is staying near to God, because God is with Joseph, because he is other-focused, because he is showing compassion and care for his fellow prisoners, that walking rightly before God despite his circumstances is actually the means of his redemption. He'd still be in prison if he didn't act that way. Let's go to the New Testament again and apply it to ourselves. In Ephesians 6, 7, and 8, Paul is speaking to Christians and how to render service to others, even though they're not necessarily the nicest people to render service to. He says, "'Rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man.'" Don't worry about whether you're going to get payback from these guys. "'Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or whether he is free, whether he's a slave or whether he's free, whether he's in prison or whether he's free.'" Render your service to others as though you're serving the Lord. Be other-focused. Be compassionate. Be loving. Be serving others regardless of what you think the payback is because Ephesians here says you will receive back from the Lord. Did Joseph receive back from the Lord because he served? Oh, yeah, he did. He got out of prison. Not only did he get out of prison, he got into Pharaoh's court. Not only was he in Pharaoh's court, he was second in command of Pharaoh. He was in charge of all of Egypt for years. God paid back that kindness. And this is how it goes with God. As you serve others as though you're serving God, God is the one that will reward. He's the one who will pay you back. And then we can see how this fits into 1 Peter again. As you finish that text about adding to our faith, Peter goes on and he says, And to godliness add mutual affection, and to mutual affection love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measures, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of your Lord Jesus Christ. But whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they've been cleansed of their past sins. What's Peter saying here? Joseph showed goodness to the baker and the cupbearer, and he also showed affection and love, and we're going to see the affection and love that Joseph shows to those that betray him even more so at the end of this story with his brothers but we get glimpses of it here. Joseph's knowledge of God was not ineffective and unproductive. Joseph's knowledge of God and his self-discipline and his self-discipleship and his relationship with God was not ineffective and unproductive. But it could have been. Peter says our knowledge and walking with God can be ineffective and unproductive if we don't have this self-discipline, if we don't have this growing in godliness and mutual affection and in mutual affection, love and so peter is saying there is work that you add to your faith there is something that you are doing and if you're not serving others, if you're not self-disciplined and self-discipled and if you're not others focused and if you're not growing in godliness and mutual affection and in love then you risk your faith being ineffective and unproductive you are nearsighted and blind you're forgetting that you've been cleansed from past sins and so The message here, both in the Old Testament in Joseph and in the New Testament in Peter and many other places, is that as children of God, if we're going to walk as Joseph walks, we have to be self-disciplined, we have to be others-focused, despite our circumstances. Despite our circumstances, we don't have an excuse not to be discipled. We don't have an excuse not to be others-focused. We don't have an excuse not to be growing in godliness and mutual affection and love. Christians who are not growing in this way are ineffective and unproductive. God has very little to work with if we are not walking with him. But then thirdly, God, Joseph stays God-glorifying. And we see this in verse 8. They said to him, We have had dreams and there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. And I just want to do a little sidebar here just for like five minutes on dreams, Okay? and being careful about dreams and their interpretation, because even in our culture today, uh, the dreams and the interpretation of dreams and the meaning of dreams can really get some people sidetracked. So I just want to look at dreams in Scripture and dreams here in Joseph and understand what he's talking about when he says, do not dream- interpretations belong to God. And and what these uh, officers, the cupbearer and the baker, were talking about when they said there's no one to interpret them. So the Egyptians regarded the interpretation of dreams as, as a science that required special study or as a department of magic, okay? And so these officers of Pharaoh's court who are in prison, they had these dreams. They knew they were meaningful dreams, but they're downcast because they don't have their court magicians available to them. Normally, if they were still in the court, they would just go to the court magician. They would just go to the soothsayer, and they would get their dream interpreted. But this idea that dreams need some sort of special science or interpretation of the images, or there's some sort of magical, you know, interpretation of them is still a prevalent idea today. There's books on dream interpretation and the symbolism of dreams, or visiting a person who has some sort of ability to interpret dreams. I mean, this is still going on. But we have to understand that, first of all, dreams have a natural function with a natural meaning, or none, okay? Okay. So if we're worried about a new job, we may dream about the interview going poorly, or we may dream about it going well. That's perfectly natural. You're stressed about something or you're excited about something, you naturally dream about it. But mostly when we dream, they don't mean anything, right? I mean, if I could remember some of my dreams or, you know, you told each other your dreams, you know they're meaningless, right? They're just these weird things that are going on in your head and they don't have any meaning at all. It's just whatever your brain is doing to, you know, clean out space for more memories or something. I don't know what dreams are doing, but, you know, they have some natural... Consequences, but but mostly dreams, mostly dreams are just natural things that are happening for natural reasons, and there's nothing supernatural about them. but here's the thing: we can get very excited when a very natural, meaningless dream overlaps with reality, but that doesn't mean the dream has meaning, okay so for instance, this is a good example in North America in population with roughly say 350 million people in North America, every single night tonight, and last night and the next night. Every single night, about a thousand people will dream that a plane crashes. Some mornings when they wake up, a plane will have crashed once or twice a year. The fact that they dreamed about a plane crashing and a plane crashed, there's no correlation. Every night, a thousand people dream about a plane crashing. And some nights, or some days, a plane does crash. But people get very excited about that, and they think, I dreamt that a plane crashed, and a plane crashed. I must be psychic, right? Or God's telling me something. No. 350 million people dream every night. We dream almost every possible circumstance that could happen in the news the next day. And so there is no connection between our natural dreams and the events that go on in the world. But... God can use dreams for supernatural function. And those dreams are not like natural dreams. And we have examples here in Scripture, in Joseph, in Genesis 40, and other places. The cupbearer and the baker understand, knew these dreams were different than their normal dreams. And I think we still have those dreams, that we know are dreams that are different than just normal, natural dreams. But when we have those dreams, we have to understand that those dreams need to be interpreted by God. The cupbearer and the baker here, the situation that they were in, uh, in prison, the similarity to the dreams that they had, the fact that they were not dreams about anything normal going on. It wasn't just dreams about them baking a normal cake or pouring a normal bottle of wine. They were deeply symbolic and they were disconnected from reality. And then they said there's no one to interpret them, thinking that the court magician would have to interpret these dreams. So, When you have dreams in Scripture and we see the interpretation of dreams, you can think of Daniel, you can think of the the visions that he had of the statue, you can think of all of those things, there's a difference between God-given dreams and natural dreams, and we can't be confused by those things. And when you have those dreams, Joseph makes it clear here for us, the interpretation of actual God-given dreams, dreams with supernatural meaning, belongs only to God. The interpretation of dream is only his, by his messenger. Only God can interpret his own word by his people or his prophets. And so I'm not big into dreams, and I'm not big into the interpretation of dreams. You're getting that picture from me. I'm not saying that God can never speak through dreams, but I think you know the difference between a natural dream and a God-given dream. And when God gives a dream, he gives the person to interpret that dream. But it's his interpretation. It's not by symbolism. It's not by by science. It's not by magic. It's not by soothsayers or anything like that. It's by God. So just be careful how you... I just put that out there to be careful how we deal with dreams because I know that that is still prevalent in our society today and we have to be careful that we do not confuse what is a God-given dream and what is God's given word versus what is simply natural or even unnatural or mystical interpretation of something that has no business being interpreted or something that we should follow. But getting back to Joseph... They said to him, we have these dreams and there's no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. And so notice here, the idea is that we get the sense from the writer here and later on with Pharaoh, he says the same thing. Joseph doesn't take credit for his ability to know dreams. Joseph gives God the credit for his gift. And what I take away from that is that it's an opportunity here for Joseph to introduce God into the lives of these, the cupbearer and the baker, lives introduce God into people who in need first by showing them our own faith. And this is how I apply this. We have to keep the attention on God in our own lives and not on ourselves. Joseph was self-disciplined and self-discipled. Joseph with others focused and others compassionate despite his circumstances. And in his life, Joseph kept the attention on God and not on Joseph. It wasn't about, oh, you know, dreams. Yeah, I can interpret dreams. Don't you know, I'm a great dream interpreter. No, he says, God is the one who interprets dreams. It's him who's going to get the glory for it. It's him who's going to get the credit. Not Joseph, but God. These Egyptians, they only knew magic and superstition. They don't know God. And as we are going out into the world, there are people that only know magic and superstition, or they only know, you know, psychology or philosophy or false hopes or, you know, their particular worldview. They don't know God. But Joseph, as he interacts with these two Egyptians who know nothing but magic and superstition, he's bold and he says, hey, God is the answer to this problem that you have. Why are you worried that you can't talk to your magicians? It's not the magician that you need anyway. It's not the court soothsayer. You need God in the first place. So don't be worried about that. Tell me your dreams. God can help you. And so despite our own circumstances, we need to always be pointing people towards God and towards Christ because they see Christ in us. And there's a nuance here that I think I know sometimes we miss. And we miss, perhaps, in our simply daily interactions with people. And this is the nuance. This is what I want you to see in what Joseph is doing and what we can be doing. Sometimes someone comes to us with a problem, okay, like these guys in prison, especially unbelievers like them. And and they come to us with their problem and they don't really have a solution because of their unbelief or because they've been looking for the answer in all the wrong places. And we may be tempted to say to them as they come to us, you need God. You know, you need to see where you need Jesus in your life. And, And that may be that they need to. But notice that that's not where Joseph starts here. Joseph doesn't say to them, you need God or you will never understand this. Joseph instead shows these two officers his own faith. He says, I'll help you, but I'll help you with God because that's the faith I have. You see the difference? So sometimes somebody comes to you and they've got a problem and our first instinct is to say, oh, we've got to tell these people of oh, God and they need Jesus. But in fact, what Joseph is saying, I'm going to help you, but I'm just going to give you my testimony. I'm just going to talk about God in my life. I'm not going to necessarily say you need God right now. And we can do that when we help people too. So as people come to you and you help them, you can help them without necessarily saying, oh, you know what, you need to come to Jesus or else this is never going to get fixed. You can say, I can help you because of God, who the, the faith that I have in God, because of the relationship that I have with Jesus Christ, because of the spiritual gifts or the compassion or the whatever that's in me that comes from God, I can help you and God is helping you through me. And you tell them, that's the point here. Joseph actually says, I'm doing this because of God. It's God that's interpreting your dream. And as we help people, we can say, you know what? The love of Christ compels me to help you. You know what? And somebody says to you, it's like, I can't believe you've been so kind to help me out this way. You say, you know what? It's not me, it's God. I I wouldn't on my own normally be this kind. It's because the love of Jesus is in me that I do this, right? Yeah, you're all laughing because you know that's true about me, right? There's no way I'd lift a finger to help any of you people. But it's true. And so that, that's, that's the nuance that I want you to see here. It's not you come on full force and say, you need God, you need the love of Jesus. No, just serve them and help them and, and help them with their problem, but use your lips to tell them, it's because of God, it's because of Jesus that I'm helping you. And that will get God into all your conversations. It'll get God into all those situations. Don't, when you help them, you know, move their house and say, oh, thanks for your help, you're such a great guy. Say, yeah, I know. I am a great guy. I really helped you out there. Say, you know what, it's not me. I helped you move because Jesus changed my life, and I feel it's my job to help other people because he changed my life. You know, you say something like that. Like, you just get God into your conversation. Stay God-centered. Stay God-focused. The point here is that Joseph doesn't become self-centered. He stays God-centered. He stays God-glorifying in everything that he does. He says, I'll help, but it's God that's interpreting the dream. And these people are probably thinking, God? Like, what are you talking about? These are Egyptians. They don't know anything about the God of... Joseph, doesn't matter. They take his help. In chapter 41, he does it again. Pharaoh says, I heard your great interpreter of dreams. And Joseph says, no, not me, but God can do it. He's talking to the king of Egypt. <laughs> he, wants nothing. he is a god in his own mind. He wants nothing to do with the Hebrew God. Joseph says, no, I can't do it, but if you want to listen, God will do it. And so we have to keep God on display and Jesus on display in our lives for his glory. Our circumstances are no excuse, not to be God-glorifying. First Peter 3.15 says, But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, and yet do it with gentleness and respect. You see what Peter's saying there? He's got the nuance. He's saying just be ready to give an answer for why you live the way you live. Why do you help the way you help? Why do you have the hope the way you have hope? Why do you have the joy that you have the joy? People are going to ask, right? And just be ready to give an answer. Keep God on display and keep glorifying God. Just keep pointing to God. Keep pointing to Jesus. So those are the three things. Our, our circumstances are not an excuse to not be self-discipled or self-disciplined. We can't say, you know what, you know, my life is so bad right now. i got so many stresses. You know, it feels like God has let me down so many ways. Forget about church, forget about small group, forget about reading the Bible, forget about prayer. I'm not going to do any of that stuff. You know, my life right now, when when things are going well and I've got the energy and the joy, then I'll go back to that stuff. No, Joseph is in the worst possible situation in his life and he never gave up being self-disciplined and self-discipled. He never walked away from God. Circumstances are not an excuse for us as Christians to not be self-disciplined. Peter says if you forget that you're growing in those areas, then you have... You're foolish, and you're nearsighted, and you're blind. Our circumstances are not an excuse not to be others-focused, right? We need to be others-focused. We have to be God-glorifying, regardless of our circumstances. Through faith, we have access to God's Word. Through faith, we have access to His Spirit, His goodness, His knowledge, His self-control and godliness. Perseverance in those things manifests itself in mutual affection and love, which brings glory to God. So we can look at the circumstances of our life and we can think, you know what? I don't need to do any of these things. But the message of Joseph, certainly the message of Joseph in the prison, the message of the writer of Genesis 40, is that there is no excuse. It doesn't matter what your circumstances are. As children of God, who are indwelt by His Spirit, we are to be self-disciplined, self-discipled. We are to be Others focused and we are to be God glorifying in everything that we do. And we have the example of Joseph here for us this morning. And as you do your homework, there'll be more examples in that. Setting up next week, if we look at Genesis 40, 20 to 23, it says, On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position, and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand, but he hanged the chief baker, as Joseph had interpreted to them. And yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. <laughs> that did not end as planned, right? Not yet. So there's going to be more time to pass. There's going to be... Joseph's going to spend... It's hard to tell. It doesn't tell us exactly. We know there's 13 years between when he was 17 and when he rises at 30 to Pharaoh's court. And in that 13 years, he's a slave and he's in prison. He's in prison at least two years because the cupbearer forgets him for two years in prison. He's probably in prison for a few years before that. Let's say he's in prison five, six, seven, eight years. He's a slave for about five years. Circumstances are no excuse not to be self-disciplined, not to be others-focused, not to be God-glorifying. Joseph kept it up year after year after year. And he didn't have the church, he didn't have God's word, and he didn't have great people like you (laughs) to support him. We have all these blessings. We have no excuse. Let's pray. Father God, We thank you that your plan for us in the New Covenant was the church. That you just didn't bring us to faith and then leave us abandoned, but that you brought us together as brothers and sisters in a family. Father, we are so grateful that it was your plan, that your word would be preserved for us in the Old and the New Testament, that we can do exactly what we're doing today and look to it for wisdom and for truth and for light and for encouragement and for learning from your Holy Spirit. Thank you that we have so many spiritual gifts, that you've poured out your spirit upon your church, that we have your Holy Spirit dwelling within us with our spiritual gifts in order to serve. Father, that we can gather in freedom on Sunday mornings and worship you and learn from you. And Joseph had none of this. And yet he walked faithfully and rightly and persevered despite his circumstances. And so, Father, I know that there are hard circumstances in this crowd today. I don't belittle or lighten any of them. And, Father, it's exactly because there are hard circumstances that people are going through that we need to walk closely with you. And so, Father, we take this as encouragement. If you were there with Joseph, if you were there with Moses, if you were there with Joshua, if you were there with Jacob, you are here with us. And we will walk with you, and you are walking with us. Father, help us to stay others-focused. Help us to stay God-glorifying, even in our circumstances. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.